0: Okay, Real Church. This is our series on 2 Corinthians. If you've been following along, we've gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter, breaking down exactly what Paul has and what he wants this church in Corinth to know. But it's been a while, so we're gonna do a quick recap. I don't know if you remember, maybe it's your first time here. We're gonna talk about 2 Corinthians and kind of the premise for this book. If you remember, Paul goes and plants a church in the city of Corinth. Corinth is a big time city, kind of like the Bay Area. It's got two ports or two harbors, lots of business, lots of commerce coming in and out of there. People had money, people were educated. Think Silicon Valley, okay? That's like Corinth. And people were smart, people were competitive. And if you remember 1 Corinthians, people were very competitive with each other where they all wanted to be the holiest. They all wanted to be the best. They wanted to use their spiritual gifts more than the other people. So that's where 1 Corinthians 13 comes about. We have to operate in love, otherwise all the gifts and things are are pointless. So this is what happens. Paul plants the church in Corinth. He spends 18 months there, which is a really long time compared to the other time that he spent in other churches. Then he leaves and he goes to Ephesus. So when Paul gets to Ephesus, he hears about moral problems coming from Corinth. They send him, and he writes a letter, letter number one. We're going to talk about four letters today. I know it's only first and second Corinthians, but there's actually four letters. So he gets to Ephesus, and he hears about the problems going on in Corinth, so he writes a letter, letter number one, letter A, let's call it. So Paul gets a letter back from the church in Corinth. He reads that, and he writes the book of 1 Corinthians as a response. That's letter B, letter number two, all right? So Paul hopes that the people of Corinth are going to figure things out, they're going to do better, they're going to obey his instructions, they're going to heed his warnings, but they don't get better, they get worse. These false teachers come in, false apostles, if you will, they come in and they try to take what Paul started and twist it to their own unique benefit. And so Paul hears what's going on in Corinth and he's grieved, he's upset about it. There's a situation where there's like the Paul following Christians and this other guy or these other teachers that follow these guys and there's kind of a civil war going on in the church. So it causes kind of a rebellion. And Paul makes a special trip to go back to Corinth and kind of settle this problem. This is what he calls the painful visit when he writes about a painful visit. This is his special unscheduled trip to Corinth to check in and kind of squash this, this rebellion. But what happens when he gets there is really different than what he anticipated. Paul makes this trip, he gets there, And they have this big confrontation, this big showdown between Paul and let's just call this guy Bob, okay? There's nobody named Bob in the audience today, is there? Okay, so Bob the false prophet, okay? Paul has a showdown with Bob the false prophet and all of Bob's followers. And Bob talks all this trash and tells Paul that he ain't bad, he ain't nothing. Get out of here, Paul. You smell funny, whatever. And all of Paul's people are like, sucks to be you, Paul, right? Nobody backs him up. So Paul's here in this showdown going, hey, you guys are doing the wrong thing. You're not listening. Pay attention. Bob's like, "Uh uh-uh. They like me better. Paul's like, guys? And the church in Corinth, they all look the other way. These guys tell Paul, you're selfish. You're, you're, You're not a true prophet. You don't look good. You don't speak well. You don't have any money. You don't have anything going for you. Meanwhile, Bob is handsome. He's a great speaker. He's got dough. Everybody likes Bob. And so Paul looks at the church in Corinth, and he's like, guys, what's up? You backing me up? Nobody backs him up. This guy calls him out. Paul leaves. Big showdown. Paul leaves. So then what happens? Paul writes what he calls a severe letter. He gets to the next town, the next part, wherever he is, and he writes, this angry, not angry, I guess, but severe, harsh letter to the church in Corinth, calling them out for all the things that they were doing wrong, and calling them out for not backing him up, really. And he sends this letter, and he says, you guys are going to have to figure it out. And he sends it with his buddy. He sends it with Titus, and Titus goes back to Corinth to check on the situation. Now, let's keep it real. Paul's feelings are hurt. He spent 18 months with these guys, taught them everything he knows, built them up into a nice, strong church. And even though they had problems, they were doing pretty well. And as soon as he leaves, some other guy swoops in and kind of changes everything. And when he comes back to try to fix it, nobody has his back. Nobody stands up with him. Nobody stands up for him. So Paul, he doesn't go to war. He doesn't start fighting. He leaves. And he writes this letter. You guys should have been there. You guys should have had my back. Where were you guys? He sends a letter back to Corinth. Titus gets there. The church has kind of figured things out with Titus' help. They realize that Paul was the one who was teaching them the right stuff. They get back on track. Paul gets another letter, hears that Corinth is doing really well, and he writes this book, 2 Corinthians, letter number four, in response to Titus's report that everything's better. Kind of a long recap. But all you have to remember is this. Church is good, Paul leaves. Church not doing so good, Paul writes letter. Church still not doing good, Paul writes another letter. Church still not doing good. Paul makes a special trip, which this is not a plane trip. This is walking hundreds of miles. He makes a special detour. Ships travel across the seas and goes to this church to try to fix it. And this false teacher, false prophet, Bob, basically smacks him around verbally, gets in his face, tells him he's wrong, and Paul doesn't have anybody backing him up. And so instead of fighting back, Paul leaves. He writes this letter, this severe letter, And then, of course, they get back on track. But I want to talk about the severe letter today. The severe letter is what we're going to focus on today in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have your Bible app, it's right there. If you don't, you can open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to go through it, verses 1 through 6. Now, some theologians believe that 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, it's also going to be on the screen too, so you don't have to follow along if you don't want to. But 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, some theologians believe that this is the severe letter. Some people believe that what we're about to read and what we're about to talk about is the severe letter that he wrote after the showdown with Bob, right? Not everybody believes that. But it kind of makes sense because it's a dramatic change and a dramatic shift in tone from the rest of 2 Corinthians. Think about it. If you remember the last two chapters, we talked about giving, Paul was talking to the church about giving and coming up with this money for a special gift to the church in Jerusalem. So we had two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, on giving. And Paul is essentially telling the Corinthian church, you guys have money. You guys are good givers. Come on through with the money you promised to give to Jerusalem, and that's going to be great. And then it shifts gears, and it goes into this. Chapter, uh, verse 1. Now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ though I realize you think I'm timid in person and that I'm only bold when I write from far away. Shot's fired, right? He says, hey, I'm writing to you with this gentleness and this kindness. I'm trying to be like Jesus, but I heard what you guys said, that I'm timid in person, but I'm bold when I'm away. Paul's saying, I hear you guys are talking a little bit of trash, He's not messing around. One of the criticisms from Bob was that Paul was all talk. Paul shows up. He says a couple words. He writes you a letter. He disappears. They said he was bold in his letters, but when he confronted, he just walked away. So I imagine Bob saying, hey, so much for Paul, you your bold prophet of God. As soon as he's confronted with a little bit of resistance, he just folds and walks away, which it wasn't an easy walk. He had to get on a boat and travel a good distance. But here's the thing. Paul saw, and we should see, that as Christ-likeness, as they saw it, well, they saw it as Paul was all talk, but Paul isn't all talk. Paul has a strategy. We're going to talk about the strategy. Verse 2, Paul says, I am begging you now so that when I come, when I come back, I won't have to be bold with those who think that I act or we act from human motives. What is he saying? I'm begging you now so that when I come back I won't have to be bold. When I come back you don't want to see me angry. You don't want to see me bold. I'm not all talk. This is a warning. Paul is saying you think I'm all talk think again. And the second part he's addressing another criticism, the false teachers, Bob, anti-Paul crew, they were saying that Paul was selfish. I imagine they thought, "Oh, look, he came back. He's losing his influence." He's losing control. Here comes your guy. He just wants to be in control. He wants the money. He wants the fame. Look at him. Here he comes. And Paul's saying, hey, look, I'm begging you now to listen so when I come back, I won't have to be bold with the people who think I'm acting selfishly. He's saying, I'm coming to you with this spirit and this Christ-likeness, and I'm coming to you gently, and I'm appealing to you with gentleness and kindness because I want you to listen now. Because when I have to get angry, when I have to get bold, it's going to get ugly. There are a lot of uh, pop culture references that I can use right here. I kind of feel like sometimes me and Chan are like the pop culture pastors, you know, where we put up pictures and video clips and stuff, Pulp Fiction or whatever, you know. But I started thinking of all these wonderful examples of what the situation could look like. And I was thinking of different pop culture icons and what I really thought, I'm gonna do something a little bit more relatable. Instead of a superhero or a movie, I just want you to think about your mom. Think about your mom for a minute. You got a picture of your mom in your head? Your mom is a beautiful, professional woman at work. She's all buttoned down. It is but you'll see why in a second. Mom's got it all together. She's sharp, you know, polite, professional. Parent-teacher conferences, oh, tell me a little bit more about Shane. What did he do this time, right? Oh, Christopher is a great reader, but he struggles with math, you know? Your mom advocates for you. She speaks so nicely about, your mom is always so pleasant, especially at church. But you, dear child, have pushed your mom's buttons. You have tested your mom's boundaries. You've nagged mom to death. You whined. You fought with your siblings, your brother or sister. My sister's here today, so I can look at her and say, we worked mom's nerves. Yes, we did. Or worse yet, you might have even talked back to your mom, which is a a crime in my household. You didn't talk back to my mom. And that's when mom changes. You ever hear the mom voice? Mom's pleasant, all of a sudden, hey! Mom changes, right? She gets that little glimmer in her eye. (laughs) She goes from super respectable, handsome, well-spoken Dr. Banner to uh, the eyes get green, right? You know when your mom gives you that look or when her voice changes? I don't know if you ever heard this. Don't make me come back there. Don't make me come up there if you had stairs. We didn't really have stairs. Don't make me pull this car over, right? I will come back there, right? Or my favorite, don't make me get ugly. Too late, right, you already ugly is what you say to yourself. <laughs> you already ugly, right? But you keep pushing mom's buttons, you keep pushing mom's limits, and all of a sudden this happens. So whether literally or figuratively, you push mom to a point where mom hulks out, right? Mom just, you know, don't make me come back there. And then you finally just push that last little button, and mom starts slamming you around. Paul's saying, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Don't mistake my kindness or my effort to teach you this way with weakness. And let's go back. He starts this by saying, you don't have to go back, I'll just read it. He starts this by saying, with the kindness and gentleness of Christ. Some translations say the meekness and the gentleness. Everybody's heard the word meek before, right? Matthew 5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? They refer to Jesus as meek multiple multiple times. What is meek? I think far too often we, we correlate meek with weak. I hate, if you haven't picked this up by now, Pictures of Jesus, you know, graven images, but they got him with the little lamb and Jesus just this pushover. He weighs like a buck 20, you know, and he's just like, oh, you know, that's like the meek Jesus. Oh, poor Jesus. Looks like a stiff wind could just blow him over. Jesus was a construction worker, y'all. Anyway. Thank you. Did you read my notes, Tim? No, he just knows. Good stuff. Power under control is actually what I wrote. Gentleness of spirit, other ways that it's used in the New Testament is meekness is accepting of God's will. It's a willingness to be led. Meek is not weak. Meek is power under control. Paul's telling the Christians, or the Corinthians, I'm sorry, I'm coming to you with the submissiveness and kindness of Christ. I'm modeling Christ-like behavior. I'm trying to appeal to you in the same way that Jesus would. And I know you think that means I'm all talk. And that I'm only bold from far away, but I'm coming back. And I'm begging you to listen. So that when I come back, I don't have to be bold. Don't make me come back there. In other words, he's saying, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Shout out to the Incredible Hope fans. So they say Paul is two-faced. They say he has selfish motives. And Paul answers. He continues 2 Corinthians 10.3. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. Other translation, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul is saying that even though he's human and he has human struggles, he doesn't fight or operate the way humans do. So Paul's saying, hey, you guys think I'm selfish. You think I'm in this for me. Hey, I'm a human, but that's not the case. I could, I'm not selfish. That's not what's going on, but I'm just like you guys. But hold on, I want you to understand something. I'm not operating in my flesh. I'm not operating in a human way. Paul's saying, Though I am human, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. War is the key word there. What is war? Battle. Paul is saying, hey, I'm human, but I'm not operating in a human. I'm a human, but I don't fight like a human. We walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. Paul is saying that even though he's human and has human struggles, he is not falling prey to this stuff. Why? Paul says in verse 4, because we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. Paul recognizes that the battle is not between him and these other false teachers or the anti-Paul crowd. Paul's saying, hey, I'm human, but I'm not in this for myself. I'm not using this in in a selfish way. He's saying, because I'm not even using, I'm not even on your level. We're talking about God's weapons. Though we are human, we do not war like humans because we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. The battle is not between Paul and this false prophet that we're calling Bob today. It's not between Paul's camp and Paul's followers and Bob's followers. The battle is between what's inside them. The battle is between their spirit and what's influencing them. The battle is in between their nature, their very nature. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6:10 through 12, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 10, he's saying, hey, I'm a man, but I'm not fighting like a man. Paul's saying, I'm coming to you, but I'm not going to fight the way you guys are trying to fight. I'm not going to pit myself against Bob and his crew. Paul's saying, I'm bringing godly weapons. Because I recognize that the battle's not between me and Bob. I recognize the battles between what's going on and what's influencing him and his spirit and his desires. And what I'm bringing to the table, which is Jesus. He started this part of the letter off saying, I'm coming to you in Christlikeness and gentleness and meekness. I'm coming to you with power under control, but please do not misunderstand. I've got godly weapons backing me up. So you guys are looking at this on a man-to-man level, but I'm not operating on a man-to-man level. I'm operating on a Jesus Christ level. Spirits. The takeaway here, in my opinion, is recognize who and what it is that you're fighting. Sometimes you'll have a conflict with someone, and you think that person or that entity or that company or that group of friends is out to get you, but it's not necessarily that person. It's not necessarily those people that are causing you that trouble. There are other things influencing those people. There are other things that are motivating those people, and you have to look and say, hey, these human weapons aren't working. Maybe I need a godly weapon. Recognize who and what it is that you're fighting, and then bring the right weapon to the fight recognize who and what it is you're fighting, and then bring the right weapon to the fight. What are the right weapons? Number one is fasting. Give you a couple of scripture examples. Mark chapter 9, when Jesus, when they're casting out demons, Jesus cast out a demon. He prayed and he fasted. Mark 9, 28, 29. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, Hey, why couldn't we cast out that demon? Why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, This kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel needed a breakthrough, he fasted. Daniel said, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. Acts chapter 13 at Antioch, the first major outpost of this new thing called Christianity. One day, as these men were worshiping with the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul, this guy Saul, who we also call Paul, the same guy who wrote this book, 2 Corinthians 10, or 2 Corinthians, appoint Barnabas and Saul for this special work to which I have called them. So after more what? Y'all can do better than that. After more what? Fasting and prayer, the men laid hands on them and sent them on their way. So look at this. When Jesus needed to do a big job, he fasted. When Daniel needed a breakthrough and guidance on what to do, and if you don't know the story of Daniel, they threw him in a lion's den because they wanted the lions to kill him, and he came out unscathed. So when Daniel needed a breakthrough, he prayed and he fasted. And when Saul and Barnabas were about to go out and do this work of planting these churches and spreading the gospel of Jesus, they prayed and they fasted. Weapon number one is fasting. When Shane and I were going to plant this church and we weren't sure if we're doing it for the right reasons, we weren't sure if this is the right move, we, we prayed and we fasted. Probably should do it again. <laughs> Weapon number two, God's word. Remember, same book we talked about earlier, Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. Everybody knows this one, right? The armor of God is to protect you from spiritual enemies and to help you fight these types of battles. Now armor in and of itself is defensive, it's not offensive. So when we read this, Paul names off all these different pieces of protection, but he does list one weapon. Anybody know what that is? Sword. Let's read it real quick. Therefore put on every piece of God's armor, so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground. Put on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. And number, verse 17, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Notice something. All of these weapons, all these things are defensive except for the sword. We're going to come back to the sword. Weapon number three, prayer. Ephesians 6, 17 through 18. We just read 17. He says, put on all this armor. Protect yourself, protect yourself, protect yourself, protect yourself, protect yourself, and get this sword. And I'll read it. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then what do you do with it? You don't use the sword. You can. But he says, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert. And be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Hold on one second. I put on all this gear. I put on all this armor. I got a shield, a helmet, a breastplate. I got fancy shoes. And you gave me a sword. But now you tell me to pray? I name all of my sermons. It's just a way to keep track of them. I name this one today, fight like a man, dot, 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 of God. Fight like a woman, dot, 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 of God. What does that mean? You can think that you have a problem with a person, but you really have a problem with what's influencing that person. You can think you have a problem with the person and you want to go to war in regular human battle, but you're not ready for human battle because that enemy is stronger than what you can do in your own ability. So you got to get God's tools, like Paul says in verse 4, godly weapons, armor, and a sword. But then the thing that you use to attack is not the sword. He says in verse 18 to pray. Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for everything that he's done. If we're defensive, why do we need these weapons? Well, Paul said in verse 4, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. What is a stronghold? Anybody? You know there's audience participation when I'm up here. What's that? A fort? Yeah. It's a place that people go to hold up, like a fort, a bunker. So what are we going to use these weapons for? We're going to use these weapons to tear down this stronghold. We're going to use these weapons to tear down these things that people hide behind, these barriers that they put between us. What are false arguments? Scripture says, knock down the strongholds of human reasoning, and to destroy false arguments. False arguments are anything that goes against Scripture. Keep in mind, Paul is not writing to unchristian people. He's not writing to people in the world. He's writing to people in the church. This advice he's giving about doing battle is not about doing battle with Jim down the street who's not a Christian. This is about doing battle with people who are in your life who proclaim to follow the Lord. These are the people inside the church in Corinth that are doing battle with each other. Let me explain what I mean. We're not talking about the world. He's not talking about non-Christians. He's talking about the people that are fighting each other in Corinth. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, I invite you to attend a church that's of a certain denomination. People are still to this day arguing and disagreeing about how we're supposed to worship God. Or they compete. Who's most Christ-like? Which of us is the best and the greatest? Which of us, which translation is closest to the original text? Which worship style brings you closest to God, right? Silly things, like do we want to baptize by immersion or sprinkle? There's all these different things that people want to battle about. It's true. The disciples did it too. Lord, which one of us is greatest? Lord, which one of us will get to sit at your right hand? You know what Jesus said? He's like, it's not about that. Today, there are hundreds of denominations, each proclaiming that their way and their method and their understanding is best. But if you want to know anything about our faith or about our Savior, if you seek any instruction or you want to know how to live, every answer you seek is in the word. That sword. Do you know that the word that Paul uses in Ephesians for sword The word that we translate for sword is actually a a very large knife. It's 12 to 18 inches. I won't try to pronounce it because I'll get it wrong. A large knife or a short sword. Think 18 inches, a foot and a half. It's not much of a sword. It's more like a machete. And they used it like a machete. It was a weapon and a tool. Let me explain. Historically, they would wear these on their hips. And they'd go about their business. Whether you're a banker or a hunter, whatever. You could use the sword to clean whatever you caught when you're hunting. You could use the sword to, you know, work on something like a pocket knife. Shane has a pocket knife. I carry a pocket knife. It's not necessarily a weapon. It's a tool. But I promise you, if something gets real hairy, I might use it as a weapon, right? I might need my tool, my short sword, my knife, whatever, to protect me one day. So they carried it for both reasons, hunting, tools, and protection. So when he says Make sure you have your sword. He's talking about this thing that they always kept with them. You didn't leave the house without your sword. You never knew what was going to happen, what job you might have to do, who you might encounter, who you might have to face. So everywhere you went, you had to make sure you had your sword with you. And in Ephesians 6, they say your sword is what? The word of God. Do you have it with you? Do you carry it with you everywhere in your heart if you have it memorized? Or better yet, do you have it on your phone? There's no excuse now. <laughs> I remember in high school we had this one kid, Brian Haney, who used to carry his Bible everywhere he went. The big leather case with the handle, you know, big old Bible. And we're like, well, Haney always has his Bible with him. Now it's like, I'm, 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 it's a heavy thing. Now it's on your phone. Here's the thing. If scripture is your weapon in this fight, and it's also a tool for day-to-day living, shouldn't you have it every day? Shouldn't you use it every day? If it's with you, and you use it to resolve conflicts and also to battle demons, but as a tool, what do we use it for today? 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps us from knowing God. And we capture rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. These obstacles or strongholds are any belief that goes against the plan and the character of God. I don't know if you know this. If you follow us on Instagram, you probably do. Because I hashtag it on just about everything we post. Our purpose statement is to remove obstacles and build bridges. That's the short version. Remove obstacles to separate build bridges to bring us together, you know. The idea is we want to remove any of those things that keep you from knowing and understanding and being in fellowship and relationship with God. If the Bible, if 10.4 says that we are going to use these, or 10.5 says we're going to use these weapons, this sword to remove obstacles, what kind of obstacles are we talking about? Well, political, racial, sexist, social justice things, sexual harassment, class issues, false doctrine, lethargy, inactivity, people that say they want to serve the kingdom but never do anything. There's so many things that happen. There's so many things. People that are resistant to science, people that want to manipulate things. These are all the things that if you read through our our, our core values and our statement of faith and all these things that we've said, hey, we want to remove these things that people stumble over when they're trying to get to the Lord. We want to remove the things that people have a trouble with when we're trying to get to the Lord. So like that's one reason you don't see any pictures of Jesus around here. We talked about this before, I won't go there again, but there's things that we do that we've intentionally removed to try to make it so that people are, are able to come to the Lord as easily as possible. And as you're walking through your day-to-day life and you've got your sword with you and somebody throws up one of these crazy obstacles, women can't be pastors, grab your sword and knock that sucker down. When you're going through your life and somebody says, hey, you know, if you don't vote Republican, you're not a Christian, grab that sword and knock that People say things, you know, oh, whatever it is, I won't get into it because some people might be sensitive. But there are things that we've looked at or that we've heard, we've dealt with in school, at our old churches where people said, hey, you can't do this and believe this. And the Bible is in direct opposition of some of those statements, some of those assumptions, some of those things that people believe. Your job, your instruction is to knock those things down. People want to debate God saying that they have a better way, they have a better understanding, or they exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. How many pastors out there say, I've got the true word? If you want the true word, you've got to go to blah, blah, blah church. That's the true word. That's foolishness, pridefulness. That's a stronghold. We've got to knock that down. What about the people that want to preach all these good things that are going to happen to you? Name it and claim it. You're going to get all this money. You know what I'm talking about, they're on TV. They live in $13 million houses and wear $5,000 suits, and they never talk about sin or hell or punishment or judgment or anything. They just tell you that you're going to get all this money and all these good things are going to happen. That's a stronghold. We got to knock it down. Because I don't know anybody in here that hasn't made in the shade. I don't know anybody in here who went through this week and didn't have a problem. Every one of us fought some kind of a battle this week. Every one of us had some kind of a stronghold, some kind of an assumption, some kind of a weird thing that we had to stare down and decide, am I going to believe this or am I going to tear this sucker to the ground? The second part of that scripture is every rebellious thought, we want to bring it into obedience. That means every thought that goes against Jesus. That means by the letter and by the spirit, meaning what you see in his character in the word and also what you see in his word in the Bible as revealed in scripture, we have to bring our thoughts into alignment with him. In verse six, it says, after you have become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. Paul's giving him time. Hey guys, I know you think I'm all talk. I know you think that I'm two-faced or maybe you even think I'm selfish. I know you think that this other guy, this false prophet Bob has got the answer, but I'm telling you, you need to go back to the word. You need to compare what this person is saying to the Bible and see if this is something that you want to hunker down into or something you want to tear down. And Paul's saying, you guys got to figure it out soon because pretty soon I'm going to come back. And we're going to punish everyone who remains disobedient. Not just that Paul's going to come back, but the Lord is going to come back. Paul's giving them time. Just like your mom. Don't make me come back there. Don't make me come up there. I'm telling you for the last time, you ever see these little kids in the store talk back to their mom? Put that down, no, it's mine! And you're just like, I cringe for those kids because I'm waiting for the smack to come, right? I'm like, you know, when they start talking back. Or you ever see these kids, they call their mom by their first name? Debbie, I told you one more time. I'm like, ooh, ooh. I'm like waiting for this kid to get knocked out. Because you know, at least if he grew up in my house or the way I grew up, you know that the smack is coming. You know the smack is on the way. It might not happen in the store for appearance's sake, but you get to the car, pow, right? (laughs) Or you get home, pow. I know it's kind of silly, but this is what Paul's saying. He's like, hey, don't mistake my kindness for weakness because when I come back, it's going to get ugly. And when the Lord comes back, it's going to get ugly, so figure out who you're going to serve. Figure out who you're going to hunker down with. Figure out if you're going to hide in the bunker, if you're going to tear that sucker down. So this week, be aware. Be aware recognize where the attacks are coming from. Is it a disagreement, a personality conflict, or is it something bigger? And if you recognize that it's something bigger, choose your weapon accordingly. Sometimes we think, I'm being persecuted, and it's really just you parked in her spot that day, you know, or something silly. But if you look at it and you feel like, hey, there's something more here, keep that weapon on you. Number two, fight like a man of God, fight like a woman of God, use godly weapons of fasting, prayer, and especially scripture. In the Reformation, if you remember, I don't know if you've ever done any study on this, but I know that Shane and I and a few of us in the room have, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, way back in the day, he was fighting against the way the Catholic Church conducted itself. He proclaimed sola scriptura, which is Latin for by scripture alone. There's a quote from Martin Luther where he says, a simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. A simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Now keep in mind, the Catholic Church back then dictated everything. They were the government. They were the criminal justice system. They were the real estate agents. They were everything. They had all the power. And what he's saying is they're keeping you ignorant they're not giving you, there no, the printing press had just come out, so Martin Luther was printing books and distributing them. He's telling people, read the Bible for yourself. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Follow what the word says, not what these people say. I'm telling you the same thing. Everything I say to you, go home and compare it with what you read. Repair it with, compare it with what you know. And when you hear things throughout the week, go back to the word and see if it's right. This is a fight. Every single day. Every single week. It could be a big fight, it could be a little fight, but every day we have choices to make. How do we fight? Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8 says, Though he was God, talking about Jesus, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Man, you can come up. Dave Guzik, he's a theologian. I read a lot of his stuff. He wrote, this kind of victory through humble obedience offended the Corinthian Christians because it seemed so weak. The carnal or the human way is to overpower, dominate, manipulate, and outmaneuver. But the spiritual, Jesus' way is to humble yourself, to die to yourself and let God show his resurrection power through you. I don't know if that means to you what it means to me. But I know that we have these, uh, these thoughts. Sometimes we feel powerful. Sometimes you want to fight, fight and battle in your, in your flesh against other guys, other people but sometimes it's not your fight. Sometimes your strategy is not going to work. My son, Donovan, who you know, all my kids do taekwondo. I told you a couple weeks ago how I took them to sparring class and they got worked up real bad. (laughs) They had to learn a lesson on what it's like to spar. Well, they've been going for a couple of months now, so I see them and they've gotten better. I threw them to the wolves and they got touched up a little bit. They learned how to keep their hands up. They learned how to counterattack, how to move. We have to learn how to do that. And then the other thing that they're learning now, I'm pointing at you because I'm talking about you, is you have to learn how to play to your strengths. You have to learn what you have at your advantage and use it. So when you're fighting a short guy, you can use your reach. Or when you're fighting a guy that's taller than you, you can get inside. There's all these different strategies. The beautiful part about all the fights that we're fighting, no matter who we're facing or what strategy we implement, that we've already won. We've already won. So this week, be aware. Use the right tool for the job. Amen? All right, we're going to sing one more song, and then we're going to get out of here. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time, for your word, for your encouragement. I most of all thank you that the battle is already won pray that as we go through these different challenges and we face these different opponents, and these different obstacles and strongholds that we would turn to you and use godly weapons to tear them down. I pray we don't go looking for a fight, but I pray that when it comes to us, we are prepared. That we wear the armor of God and we carry that sword, which is the word of God. And when we need to go on the offense, we pray. We pray and we pray and we pray. So more than anything, Lord, as we read these scriptures and we talk about real problems, we talk about real solutions, we talk about what it means to be a real church, I pray that we have a real faith, that we trust you, that we depend on you, that we we use you to fight our battles for us, that we can take that position of, of, of humility and Christ-likeness, and kindness, and gentleness, and meekness. Because meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. It's a willingness to be led. So I pray that we would be led, that we would be under control, and that we would live and represent you in a way that we already know we can't lose. Help us to operate in the way that you operate to learn to fight these battles in the way that you fought these battles, that you would fast, that you would pray, that you would take time with the Father. Give us your wisdom, your meekness, your tools, your weapons, your patience, so that we can tear down these strongholds and we can fight these battles with the sword that you gave us, which is your word. In Jesus' name.